From the studios of Teeing It Up in the swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for Monday. It is March 28th, the year 2022. And as we get ready for the Masters next week for other sporting events, baseball starting up on uh, Masters Thursday, as we gear up for other stuff, we're going to make a 180 and go in a completely different direction. And it is fitting that it is freezing today in the Northeast because we're going to go back to Beijing and go back to the Olympics and welcome in for the first time in 11 years on teeing it up, Matt Andrew, uh, who I went to college with at, at uh, uh, sorry, Quinnipiac University. Back to teeing it up. Matt, welcome back. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, my pleasure. Uh, you're welcome. Um, Matt's here because he worked for the Olympic Broadcasting Service uh, during the Beijing Games. Very, a, a very unique experience. Before Matt talks about his experience, and I explain why I wanted to have him on the show in the first place, I just want to say this from the get-go. This is not a politics show. Anybody who's listened to these episodes of Teeing It Up, where we've had to talk about COVID vaccines and, and athletes and rules and protocols... I don't talk news. I don't talk politics. Obviously, peace is better than 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 anything else. But this is about the Olympic sporting experience, not not everything that happened in China. I just want to make that clear from the get go, um, so that nobody looks at me and says, "Why didn't you ask Matt about X Y Z?" That's because that's just not what I do on this show. So, I, I think that's pretty well put, Matt. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so on that note, you, my friend, had a very interesting journey, which you documented on Instagram. And that's why I wanted to have you on, because A, I've never known anybody who's worked for the Olympic Broadcasting Service, and B, I've never known anybody who, through a raging pandemic, has had to travel somewhere and go through the, the hoops that you had to get through to be able to do your job. So... Let's start with, you're a longtime freelance videographer, cameraman. You've worked for basically every network, I think, by now, safe to say, over the years? I've worked for a lot of different networks, yeah. ESPN, NBC Sports, CBS Sports, Fox Sports, um, uh, UFC, MMA, just, just about most sporting events I've worked. And the Olympics were... They were an event that I have been wanting to work uh, for a few years now. I've always said, like, I want to do at least one Olympics. Um, I haven't done, like, World Cup or, uh, like, Formula One racing. Those are, like, two bigger events that I haven't done. But most major sporting events I have worked, and the Olympics were on that list. And uh, it's been something I've been trying to be a part of for a few years now. Um, and finally was able to to make it happen for Beijing 2022. Yeah, so um, before we get to what the OBS is, for those who don't know what the OBS is, um, and I'm going to tell the folks out there where they can find another podcast that talks about the OBS experience for the Summer Games. Um, let's go backwards here. So you get the gig... You're excited. Now you have to get to Beijing, which is not the easiest thing. And you documented every single step of this journey. So just take the folks through what I saw through your social media, which is your journey from Connecticut to Beijing, China. 
the journey really began um, like a couple of months before I even took the flight from uh, the U.S. to Beijing. I was uh, a photojournalist uh, full-time prior to being a freelance camera operator, so my intention with going out to the games was to document it as such. Uh, I wanted to, to document this entire experience um, kind of from a journalistic approach, not just all the highlights, but to showcase kind of like what it took to get out there. And then also the experience out there. I knew that the Olympics this year was going to be different from most other Olympics. I know that um, Tokyo had uh, similar vibes with certain types of lockdowns. But from stories I've heard of other people who've worked the Olympics, um, you know, I knew that this was going to be a lot different because going into it, we knew we were going to be in a bubble throughout the entire time. We weren't going to be able to go out in Beijing and have certain cultural experiences that we would if we weren't um, in a pandemic. So I really wanted to just document that in a certain way. Um, and to show people what it's what, what my experience is like, um, both to kind of show uh, people that I know what my experience is out in Beijing, but also to document it for myself. You know, hopefully, in future Olympics, we we won't have this same type of experience. So, while it isn't the same type of fanfare that previous Olympics might have had. Um, it certainly was one of a kind, and I knew that going into it. So I really wanted to document what that was all about. So once I was able to get the gig, um, we had a, a variety of different steps that we needed to do in order to be a part of the games. It included a, a fair amount of, of paperwork leading up to it. There was a whole online portal where we had to fill out your standard information between your address, passports, all of, all different types of um, information that OBS and the Chinese government will have to make sure that you are allowed to go over to Beijing. Um, and then as we got closer, we had to take a variety of different tests, uh, COVID tests and steps to make sure that we weren't going to be traveling with COVID-19 over to Beijing. Uh, obviously, China's very, very strict about uh, COVID, and they're being like extremely cautious. And in a lot of ways, I get it. They're having thousands of people from around the world all convening in one spot. And if there were large COVID outbreaks, that would completely upend the games. It would completely upend all the work that these athletes put into getting to the games and would really put a damper on this really shortening event. So, you know, the protocol that they went, that they had to, to put on everyone was very strict and it was very frustrating in a, in a lot of ways. Um, but you could imagine trying to coordinate thousands of people in a variety of different languages, all trying to get to Beijing without COVID. So we had to submit certain types of paperwork. If you had COVID before, if you did have COVID before, if you had COVID, you had to like submit uh, doctor's notes showing that you had COVID and when you had when when it actually um, when you actually had it. Um, luckily, I've never gotten COVID, so that eliminated a step for me. But 
uh, leading up to the game, uh, kind of right before flying, we had to take uh, a COVID test that was not just an at-home administered test that had to be at a facility uh, within 96 hours of your final flight to, to Beijing. And then we had to take another test within 72 hours of your final flight to Beijing. And those two tests had to be at least 24 hours apart. The test uh, that was 72 hours prior to your final departure to Beijing had to be at a, a certain sanctioned testing site. So within the state of Connecticut, there was only like one or two different sites. So you really had to make sure that you were going to the right testing facility that was approved by uh, Beijing and the Chinese consulate uh, so that they were able to get the results and you had to submit those results um, before you could even get on the plane. And we had, had to do a little bit of math because it wasn't from when you left the U.S. It was from when your final flight departure to Beijing was. And I was leaving from Tokyo. So I had to do a little bit of time conversion of like what time is it in Tokyo and how could I backtrack 72 hours before that to our time here in the U.S. to make sure that I was within this like perfect testing window. Um, so there was, it, as we got closer, I was getting a little more nervous. I was being very cautious not to be around a lot of people. Like the last thing I wanted was to get COVID right before I left and completely upend this entire uh, project that we were going to be working on. Um, so personally, I was like just very cautious, wearing a mask, trying not to be around a lot of people um, for like the entire month, basically from like Christmas on. I was being very careful and cautious uh, health-wise not to, to catch COVID and just to be healthy and safe and make sure that uh, nothing was going to derail these plans. I'm exhausted. <laughs> I can't imagine how you are. So you, you get into Beijing, and one of the things that became very apparent to me looking at your images was that there was a weird juxtaposition between COVID safety, hazmat suits, and a welcoming group of volunteers. <laughs> it was like, welcome to the Olympics, and oh, by the way, make sure you don't take one step in the wrong direction. So as you first get there, and you're good, and you can go to the hotel, and you're you know sitting pretty, um, did it feel odd to be on the ground, yet not on the ground in Beijing and, and yet not really in Beijing? Because, for example, after Mike Tirico came back to the U.S., he was asked by Richard Deitch on the Sports Media Podcast, do you feel, you know, how would you term your time in Beijing? And he said, I feel like I've been to the Olympics because I went to venues and I saw things, but I don't feel like I went to Beijing. So... Thinking about it now, you land, you're there, you're, you know, you have X amount of time before you start rehearsing for the opening ceremony. Did you feel like you were at the Olympics or did you feel like you were in Beijing or did you feel like it was neither? I definitely felt like I was at the Olympics. Um, yeah, like obviously I wanted to go out and explore Beijing to have like greater cultural experiences. I mean, the Great Wall of China was like an hour, hour and a half away, and we couldn't go see it. You know, I, I really wanted to go do stuff like that. And normally, yeah. you'd be able to do that. 
Um, so, I mean, I definitely felt like I was at the Olympics. Like, there was Olympic flags everywhere, and I think, uh, you know, they had the games there in 2008, so they had a lot of infrastructure already built. So I saw signs from the 2008 games that I think helped paint the, like, Olympic picture. Um, and, you know, I definitely wish I had a greater uh, Beijing experience um, it was definitely weird. Like, we had to get tested every single day. We had our temperatures taken every single day. Um, our The hotel staff that interacted with us, uh, they lived at the hotel with us. Um, like, they weren't allowed to go home. We had this very intricate uh, bus system. It was almost like a mass transit bus system for the Olympics uh, that was within a bubble. So you drove around the streets of Beijing. It's just that you were in a bus the whole time. So, like, I saw aspects of Beijing, right? There was, like, a couple different routes that the bus drivers took, and I was able to kind of see people out in the street walking around. Um, but we were, like, the bus was part of that bubble. Uh, luckily, I was able to go up into the mountains uh, twice. So our venue, the Big Air venue, was in the city. It wasn't in the mountains with the rest of the ski and snowboard events, but they had a bullet train that went up to the mountains that was also part of this bubble. So I was able to take that bullet train to the mountains just to see like a different aspect of the Olympics, see some more venues, kind of have like a mini field trip. It felt good to, it almost felt like we were getting outside of our little bubble in Beijing because I was able to go to the mountains and just kind of seeing some landscapes, seeing like small towns and villages along the route up to the mountains was cool. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I felt like I was in Beijing to some degree, you know, obviously you're, you're there, but I wanted a, a better experience. I, you know, I, I hope to go back and really experience it. Um, but it felt like the Olympics to me. I mean, it was cool. It was really cool to be there. Matt Andrews with us here on Teeing It Up, uh, who was a part of the Beijing uh, Olympic production team as part of the Olympic Broadcasting uh, Service, which we'll get to right after I give you this FYI. If you are looking for a completely different look at the OBS, go back in the archives. 2016, Brant Packer was on this show from Golf Channel. He was the Golf Channel producer taking the world feed that was produced by OBS via NBC Sports, because for the big sports, and, and Matt, if this is still the case, uh, you can verify this for me. I believe every big country around the world has a network that takes the production of one event that they feel like they can be great in for OBS, in 2016 in Rio, that was golf and Golf Channel. And that whole experience about taking the feed that OBS is giving it, uh, giving you and then personalizing on top of that, Brent Packer teeing it up 2016. Go back to the September, I want to say, archives for that, and, and you can find that um, there. Is, is, is that still the case, by the way, that it's a network? Um, you know, for, for the big event, it's, it's a network from some country that kind of is the base feed for OBS? Yeah, so OBS, the Olympic Broadcasting Service, is the broadcasting division of the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. Uh, and basically what we are is the world feed. We, because 
all the different nations have different networks that broadcast it within their countries. So in the United States, obviously, it's NBC. Um, it's challenging and logistically hard for all those countries' uh, networks to staff 100% of the positions for the Olympics, considering how many different positions are needed, how many different venues there are. Uh, it's very costly to do that. So what OBS is is essentially the world feed. We produce the, the venue, the, the broadcast of the venue, and then NBC for the United States will take that, that feed and they will cater it to the U.S. market with their own commentators. They will sometimes staff a handful of cameras that the NBC director could direct into the world feed show in order to cater it to the U.S. market. Um, I think it, it varies venue to venue depending on how many NBC staff or NBC freelancers that they have at the venues. Um, like hockey is obviously a very big sport within the Winter Olympics. I think that they and NBC is always been big into uh, ice hockey, so I think that they put more personnel on ice hockey, figure skating, and probably less personnel on other events. I don't want to speak for NBC. I don't know their exact numbers. Um, but yeah, we're basically producing the, the world feed. So the entire world will take our feed um, and use it for their individual country's markets. Now, Matt folks had one of the coolest gigs in the Olympics. And that is when you work the opening ceremonies, you basically have a big secret which is you kind of know what's going to happen because you have to be there for the rehearsals. So walk me through this. You're finally let out of your hotel. You can go to rehearsal. And we've all been to rehearsals. You know, we've been to concert rehearsals where, nope, stop that, redo it. We're trying to fix this, that, and the other. Or we've been to... TV show rehearsals where it's like, yeah, that, that segment's too long. We're five minutes long. We need to cut that out. Um, we've, you know, testing one, two, three, one, two, three. You're going there. And part of this, from a visual standpoint from the U.S., and, you know, from the couch, is that you have to hit a mark. If you're trying to show a child holding a candle that's going to have a big purpose in the opening ceremony and that person's coming from stage right, you have to have the camera right there, then you have to be able to know where the cut's gonna be so that as this child moves across, you can you know, correctly get the handoff to whatever thing that's going to lead to. So as you go into rehearsal, what kind of a, a rehearsal was this and how hard was it? You, you know, you've been um, with Hillary for a long, long time, your wife. How hard was it to keep the secret in about what you're seeing and all these LED effects which the director had, you know, put together for this opening ceremony? So they had been rehearsing the opening ceremonies uh, for a few weeks, or at least a couple of weeks at the Nest, the main uh, stadium. Uh, I, you know, I, I can only imagine what types of rehearsals all the individual performers were having leading up to the games. But we did two full rehearsals leading up to the actual opening ceremonies. Our director had 26 cameras. The main world feed had 26 cameras that he was cutting between. And it was timed out to the second. It was, you know, on point, which was one of the most amazing and fascinating uh, takeaways that I had from the Olympics was seeing thousands of, literally thousands of people in 
the stadium that weren't fans that were performing this integral dance at a, in a very timed event in order to make this opening ceremonies a really incredible performance. Leading up to it, we were instructed uh, very strictly not to take any pictures or videos of the rehearsals. Uh, that meant like, not even taking your phone out of your pocket uh, unless you needed to text some, somebody or send a message. And even so, like, don't point the camera towards the actual ceremony itself just to cover yourself and make sure they know that you're not trying to record something and leak any images of what their opening ceremonies would be. Um, so we had two full rehearsals and I was telling people without giving too much detail that it was going to be a, a really cool opening ceremony. Um, and obviously like being there, I think you have a totally different perspective. Uh, I think emotions run a little bit differently when you're, you're present in such a, a large venue with all these people performing. And it was, it was one of the coolest events I've definitely ever been part of to be there on the floor with the athletes during the opening ceremonies as all this was happening um, and to see everybody performing their task and to see the behind the scenes logistics of what it takes to pull a stunt like this off was insane. It was, it was amazing to see what all these people could do together. Um, I mean, even like they had the nest, this gigantic stadium, the entire floor was a giant LED board. Uh, and then within the LED board, they had two areas where that the LED board opened up and items came out of the floor. For anyone who had seen the opening ceremonies, there was this gigantic like LED ice cube that came out of the floor and lasers you know, magically melted this ice cube. It revealed the rings, and then those rings, like, lifted off the ground into the air. And you have to think, like, the amount of people that were below stage rigging that. There was rigs that were going across the top of the stadium that were hoisting up the rings and moving them around. And then in the center of the LED board was this gigantic circle with this massive snowflake that also rose from the floor, got rigged up, and got flown around the stadium. And you think about the logistics involved, the timing involved, the personnel involved, just with those two items alone was mind-blowing. It was, like, amazing to see it. As I was, like, literally watching it during opening ceremonies, I didn't know if I was watching something that was, like, CGI, if it was an effect, or if it was actually something that was happening in front of my eyes. I was watching it being, like, I can't really tell what's happening right here, right now, but this is so cool. What was your actual role during the opening ceremonies? So I was running uh, an RF handheld camera. So that is a camera that's on my shoulders, has a radio frequency uh, antenna on the back of it, so it's not cabled. So the image gets sent to a variety of uh, transmitters and eventually gets back to the TV compound where they're able to take it. Um, I was on the floor in between where the athletes, basically where the athletes walk into the stands and sit down. And my main role was to shoot the athletes as they were uh, approaching the stands, getting them waiting for the camera, getting their excitement. And then once they were in the stands, uh, filming them as they were, 
either staying for the national anthem or clapping or um, doing a variety of different things. So it's mostly to get athlete reactions uh, as they were, ent- you know, entering their seats and seeing those opening ceremonies, uh, some of them for the first time. One of the interesting things, Matt, we're talking to Matt Andrew, a longtime friend of mine, went to college with me, uh, 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 with him who worked for the OBS, the Olympic Broadcast Service, during the Beijing Games. One of the interesting things that comes from all of this is you talked about it time down to the second. You can't help or, or you can't predict what some athletes from some you know country will do and will they... Will they be slower than, than normal, faster than normal? You can't time out various speeches or anthems that happen during the opening ceremony. So in your ear, are they cutting things or are they trying to speed things up to get it down to the second? Or had they rehearsed this so many times before you even got there to where if Thomas Bach's speech went you know, two seconds too long, you were in a position, or, or sorry, five seconds too long, or 30 seconds too long, the director knew where to cut it to make sure that you ended on time. I think that in all live broadcasts, you have to anticipate uh, a level of flexibility. Uh, you know, you know that it, not everything is gonna hit to the second, so you're going to provide some flexibility within your broadcast. You know, certainly, I think that everything went very smoothly in my ear. Uh, it's often chaotic. There is the director. There is, like, a coordinating director, a coordinating producer. They're all talking at the same time, trying to to predict. They know how the show's going to run, right? They have this entire rundown. They actually gave us, an ex- like, an Excel spreadsheet of the entire show, timed out, what shots, what cameras they were going to take. They had done a lot of pre-production leading up to the opening ceremonies. And it honestly shifted during rehearsals. Like, at the end of rehearsal night number one, you know, the director was like, okay, uh, this didn't work. We're going to do this instead. And then end of rehearsal night number two, he's like, okay, this didn't work this time. We're going to do this uh, a different way. So they're kind of constantly shape-shifting and adjusting based on what cameras were looking good, which, what was the right move. They had this uh, spider cam in the stadium, you know, like a sky cam, a camera that was uh, mobile in the air. And, you know, a logistical challenge with that camera is to not only use it in its fullest capacity because it could get some really incredible dynamic shots, but also to make sure that it's not going to be in the next shot that you yeah. take from another camera, right? Yeah, it needs to get out of the way. Camera. You have to be very careful that you're not, you're going to make sure that that camera is out of the way so that you could take uh, another camera and not have that that crossover. Um, so that was kind of worked out throughout the, the opening ceremony uh, rehearsals. Um, and certainly things, you know, change here and there, but I think in general you uh, you work with it. You know, that's like the the craziness of live broadcast I think a lot of people watching at home never realize is that it is all happening live like a lot of this is not edited and if you watch a basketball game or a hockey game or the Olympics and you don't see any mistakes uh, that means everyone did an A plus job right like there was there were no 
hiccups, and that was all live. Like, that wasn't edited out. Not to say that there are certain times where um, certain broadcasts, certain things might be edited within a broadcast, but, like, you know, largely almost every game you watch is live, and if there are no mistakes, you you realize, like, uh, the amount of prep and work and how dialed in everyone is to make sure that that broadcast looks flawless. Matt Andrew with us here on Teeing It Up. Um, did you know who would light the torch uh, during rehearsals? Because I've heard that sometimes they, not even for the crew, if they're trying to make sure that nothing leaks, they will, in the middle of the night, rehearse somebody else. Like, what you'll see during rehearsals is like a staff member lighting the torch, and then the actual torch lighters will practice it in the, you know, in like the middle of the night at, at like f- four in the morning. Did you and your rehearsals know who would light the flame? Uh, I think the people who were in the rehearsals were the ones who lit it. Um, that's a good question that I couldn't be 100% sure on. I don't know if they did any secret rehearsals. I know that like when our crew was done, we all went home. So if they had rehearsed something outside of the TV broadcast, I wouldn't have known about it. But within our broadcast, um, you know, we were all present during most of those uh, broadcast rehearsals. So now it's like, okay, that ceremony's done. That experience is done. Now it's time for big air. Did it feel like the regular sporting event you've done? You've you've done. Did it feel normal, quote unquote? Did 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 it feel like 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 riding a bike at that point? Uh, it did in a lot of ways. I, the, the big air, I think just like from personal experience was the best event I could have worked. Uh, we, one of the big benefits is that we were in the city. So we weren't facing a lot of brutally cold weather that a lot mm. of people in the mountains were facing. Yeah. Um, so my experience was probably different in that way from a lot of people that were in the mountains. When I went to the mountains, like, Quite literally, my eyelashes were freezing shut because it was so cold at times. I'm not sure uh, so how they did some of, of those events. People who worked like half pipe and slope style and any of those events that were in the mountains because they had to endure um, weather that was far harsher than what I had to deal with. Uh, and the Big Air event was like, to me, one of the coolest events. I grew up skiing with my buddies and from like middle school and high school, I I had a camera on me and I made ski films. Like, And then to be at the Olympics and working a big air event where these athletes are performing at their highest level, they are trying to throw down literally the hardest tricks ever created. They're trying to push the boundary and do tricks that nobody has ever done before. So to be a part of that uh, was amazing. I've, I've worked other types of like one-off big events before for Red Bull, um, different types of big airs and like, I don't know, like major trick events. I've worked X Games. So um, there was a bit of familiarity when working big air, but at the same time, like the venue itself was incredible. It was within this old steel uh, industrial area. I think it, I think for some people it was weird and it got some flack for... It definitely did present. back here. It, it definitely was an odd look here, but it was also a cool look. But, but uh, uh, 
but I can validate that back here at home, some people looked at that and went, is that safe? Is that like, is everybody going to be okay here? Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause it was a weird look at first. No, no doubt. And that, that was, that was like really interesting for me because, um, like when I showed up to, when we first went to the big air event, I was like, this is amazing. This is so cool. I, I, I had no like a knee jerk reaction of this is silly. This is weird. Like this is ugly. This, this is safe. My first impression was I was blown away. It felt like, it felt like we were in a video game. Like if, if Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2 were to make uh, a big air event, this is what it would look like. You know, it was like, it was insane. And when I talked to all the athletes, I asked them like, how is this jump hitting? Like, how are you feeling? They loved it. Like it had no, from my experience, talking to a variety of athletes, that's female skiers, male skiers, uh, female snowboarders, male snowboarders. Not once did I hear anybody complain about the jump or the venue, they loved it. So from my perspective, I was like, I love it. I think it's really cool. The athletes love it, but they think it's really cool. It was a little surprising to me that uh, it had some negative reactions uh, outside of Beijing. Yeah, and, and I think that's um, sometimes the lens that we're looking at it through. And we can't see the whole venue, like the whole, whole venue. We're seeing that little, you know, through the camera's eyes prism, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So Matt Andrews with us here on, on Teeing It Up. You are a curious person. Anybody who's looked at your work, and we'll get to that at the very end of this, um, knows that you are very curious. And you were taking these black and white pictures as much as you could, you know, completely legally inside. We're not talking about during the opening ceremony. We're, we're talking about, you know, the stuff, whether it's your phone or a camera or, or whatever, you're kind of documenting your journey. As you're going through this process, what the heck is Hillary saying to you back home? Like, is there part of her? Because because what, what we're hearing back here is there's there's COVID inside the bubble. There are there are athletes having problems. We've got the whole Russian figure skating fiasco. We've got, you know, potential conflict in Ukraine. We've got all kinds of different things happening from our perspective here. Did you, while in Beijing, have any idea of the various things happening within Beijing and the way that it was being portrayed here, where at the same time we're seeing amazing things every single night um, and amazing feats? You know, Nathan Chen finally winning that gold medal that eluded him four years ago. So great things are happening in Beijing and in the mountains. And yet, there's also this other storyline happening. Did you have any idea inside of that bubble of, of that secondary storyline? We weren't shielded from uh, any of those storylines that might have been negative. You know, I had internet. Um, we were, I was able, you know, I, I talked to Hillary twice a day, you know, morning and night. We were 13 hours ahead. So it was kind of like as I was going to bed, you guys are waking up and, yeah. and vice versa. So, um, no, Hillary was super supportive and excited and she, she thought it was really cool and was never, never expressed like a, a nervousness or anything like that. You know, I've, we both traveled 
quite a bit and have experienced a variety of different cultures and places around the world. So um, I think that our experiences abroad, you know, allow us to feel more comfortable in uncomfortable situations abroad. Um, but, you know, we were, we were very busy. Um, during our competition days, our days were like 15-hour days. Uh, so a lot of the time, any of the other noise or controversies that were going on, um, I might have been, I've, I've like heard about it, but I wasn't totally attuned to it all because, you know, we were very focused on our venue and, and working and waking up and doing it again the next day. And there wasn't a lot of time to kind of analyze the pitfalls or the highs of all the different venues and all the different games that were going on. You know, I had, I had heard of the, the controversy with the Russian Olympic skater and, um, I don't know, a variety of different, um, I was reading online, like people, you know, bashing the big air event about how it looked and, um, you know, you're right when you're, you're watching it on TV, you're watching it through, um, a certain, you know, prism and that's not to say that like NBC or these broadcast networks are trying to cloud it one day or one way or another. It's just, you know, it's just a different perspective when you're there. Like I had a behind the scenes look at these athletes as people, as um, people are just really trying hard to uh, achieve greatness and uh, not, you know, the, the drama that get comes along is, um, the drama that you see on TV, but you know when I'm there, I don't see that same type of drama. Um, and like I said, I wasn't shielded from it. I think it was largely that we were really busy and we were concentrating our venues. And I tried to keep up with other Olympics, other Olympic games and events while I was there. But quite honestly, like I didn't even get to watch many other game events that were happening. Like we were just so busy that uh, I didn't even get to tune into much. You know, I'm glad you pointed that out because I think that, that sometimes some of these secondary storylines come from from sports that are either done or have a break or have three days off or have four days off, you know, between something. Um, and also from people that are really, really locked in back home, either because that's their job to be in contact with people back home or for some other purpose. So, so I think you bring up a great point, which is maybe those who had a gap between events kind of may have picked up on these secondary storylines while people like you who are working 15-hour days, day after day after day, you know, were kind of locked in and, and um, you know, kind of not shielded, as you said, but just were focused on your job day in, day out and weren't thinking about these other storylines. Matt Andrews with us, uh, who, who was a part of the Olympic Broadcast Service uh, presentation of the Beijing Olympics. Did you end up on TV at all back home, and did you hear from anybody, if so? <laughs> I know a lot of people were looking for me on TV. Um, I don't think I ever ended up on TV um, that I know of. Um, I was behind the scenes, less, less visible than... Um, other camera operators were, um, but you know I, I know a variety of our crew that you know got got on TV uh, based on where their position was. Uh, when I worked Big Air, my position was at 
literally at the top of the jump um, in the room that the athletes were preparing to take their run. Uh, so I was in this room with basically all of the athletes, all of their coaches, which was really cool. And my job was to uh, film them as they were preparing, whether it's mentally kind of standing by themselves, thinking about their, their next trick. Um, they might do like certain motions with their arms to kind of visualize how they're going to flip and spin in the air. Um, and it was also all of them watching the other athletes. So we had this big TV screen with the feed from our event and they would watch what the previous athlete had just performed. And they were almost always, they were always supported. Like when somebody landed a really crazy trick, they were all stoked that that person did it. It wasn't like, um, any type of anger or resentment that somebody pulled off a trick that they didn't. Uh, I'm sure they felt that competitive edge inside, but it was a lot of support. So I was catching reactions of coaches and athletes as they saw what their fellow competitors were performing out on the jump. Um, so for me, it was, it was a really cool experience to be able to interact with these athletes. That was something that like my position allowed for that other positions didn't. Um, I was literally with athletes face-to-face, you know, at times talking with them. I, I tried to give them, obviously, their space but there were times when we would ride up the elevator to the top of the jump together and I would just chit-chat with them and ask them how the jump's feeling or how they're feeling and um, just to get to know them, to build a bit of a rapport, right? Because I'm this camera guy with a gigantic camera and I'm in their faces for this entire event. And part of my approach is to not be this um, kind of elusive figure that uh, they they don't know or can't connect with. So for me, I try to interact uh, in a certain to a certain degree to get them comfortable with my presence. And I think that allows for um, like better reactions. They they know who I am, um, and it allows me I think to to get a little more intimate with the athletes. Um, and that's there's a fine line between like trying to become buddy buddy with them but also trying to create a, a familiar presence that they're comfortable with. You know, like, my job is not to become friends with them. It's not to take pictures. It's not to, like, take selfies or get autographs. It's simply to be there to, to document what's happening. But I think there's a level of humanity that I try to tow as I'm there. And then after the night was done, or after the day was done with our event, because our event was during the day, we went and did uh, cer- uh, metal ceremonies. So we would then leave our venue, go back to the main Olympic area where they had metal ceremonies. And my position there was in the green room with the athletes before they walked on stage to get their medal, one of the biggest moments of their lives. And uh, it was this room, I was literally the only camera operator in this room. So I was the only camera in the entire world in this room capturing these athletes as they prepared. Sometimes they were just kind of hanging out with a coach or a family member. Sometimes they were interacting with each other, but they would sit in there for about 45 minutes before they walked on stage. They would get briefed about like what the opening, what the medal ceremony would be like, like how you're gonna walk, what order you're gonna walk, the whole rundown of how it would, how the medal ceremony would operate flawlessly. Um, so for the big air medalists, both ski and snowboard, it paired really well because 
I had developed a certain relationship with certain people, uh, certain athletes at the Big Air event. And then at night, I would go and they would come in and they would, you know, be ready to get their medal. And at first, they wouldn't recognize me, but I would say, hey guys, remember, I was just with you at that at the event today, like that was such great competition. You guys crush it, congratulations on winning. Um, and they would immediately make that connection and say, oh yeah, how you doing? So now I had like double familiarity with my position. And in the green room, the camera was a lot more intimate because they were by themselves. I was the only camera in there. And it's awkward for a camera to just be pointed at you for uh, a lengthy amount of time. Um, but to develop that like slight, slight relationship, I think allowed them to feel a little more comfortable. Now, I was only able to do that with the big air athletes. We had figure skaters, we had speed skaters, we had all the different events that weren't in the mountains. The mountains had their own medal ceremonies uh, event and platform up there, so the athletes didn't have to travel all the way down to Beijing to accept their medals. But all the events that happened uh, within the city, like I was there to capture that. And then afterwards, like a lot of the athletes would come back into the green room with their medal and showcase it to their family and friends. Um, Eileen Gu, the uh, famous skier who competed for China, there's a lot of controversy around her about who she should, who she should and should be competing for. She came back in the room and I got her putting the medal around her mom's neck for the first time ever. And it was like, this incredible moment that I was the only one that was able to witness this and see it and see this behind the scenes, um, like really important moment in both of their lives. So it was really cool to be able to uh, see these athletes compete and then also see the rewards that they got at the end of the day for all the hard work that they put into it. That is, that, that, that is cool. Um, Matt Andrews with us here on Teeing It Up. Um, that's an amazing experience. You may not have been on TV, but boy, did your shots end up on TV. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting um, that the the closing ceremonies are, are typically a party. Um, the sense that I got from here was that it was a relief. When you're working the closing ceremonies, was it a party or was it a relief? Um, I didn't feel it, feel like it was a party. It felt, it probably felt more like a relief. Um, you know, I was out there for 27 days. Yeah. We did the opening ceremonies literally the night before we were flying home. So our ceremonies got done at like 10.30ish PM our time, local time there. Um, and then we had like a 40 minute to an hour ride to our hotel between catching all the different buses and the bus system. So, you know, I didn't get to bed until about midnight and then I had to be up at 3am to catch a bus to then start the whole process of coming home. It was 35 hours of travel to, to get home. Um, so, you know, after 27 days, um, it was super cool to be part of the closing ceremony just too, but I, I was ready to, to kind of, you know, get back home and get back into, uh, you know, quote unquote, a, a more normal life. But the closing ceremonies were super cool. I mean, you know, it was, it was, a, it was powerful in a lot of ways. Um, 
between like the whole Russian Ukraine conflict, knowing that that was going to be coming, seeing the world all together in one place, like still having this uh, harmony and, and peace amongst all the people from different nations, um, had a weird juxtaposition that I was kind of um, processing through my head during the, the closing ceremonies. Uh, so it was it was different. It was way different than the opening ceremonies, but um, it was special in its own right. Two more. Um, number one, anything else about the Olympic experience you want to mention that you haven't already? Um, I don't know. We just talked about a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I would think that, because one of the things that I took from the games, watching them um, back here, so these athletes are really damn good at what they do. Um, and those those folks in the mountains, I mean, God, those images, the wind, the way the wind was whipping the, the you know, skiing events having to be delayed. I mean, kudos to all the athletes and all of your colleagues at, um, at the Olympic Broadcast Service. I have no idea how they, how they kept their heads, uh, you know, on, on correctly to execute all, all of those productions. Um, and then, yeah. And, and then going forward, uh, I, I know cause I'm friends with you, but the folks out there may not realize you actually have a company and, and this is a very diverse set of, of skills that you and your wife, Hillary are, are putting out there into the world. So where can folks find what you're doing on a day to day basis when you're not also working Olympic games or NHL games or just having fun skiing? <laughs> <laughs> there's a couple of different ways to check out our work uh, we run a production company called Frame and Focus Media our website is frameandfocus.media uh, the same with our Instagram handle frameandfocus.media my personal photo website is just mattandrew.com and then my Instagram is matt underscore andrew um, so both platforms have kind of different aesthetics. A lot of my mattandrew.com and my personal Instagram is a, a lot of still photography and maybe more my sports experiences, at least like on Instagram stories. And then the Frame and Focus uh, website Instagram is very much focused on our production work as a company and the different brands and companies that we do work for. He is Matt Andrew. Um, it's funny when I was looking this up uh, before we came on, uh, you you took pictures of me in the WQAQ studios hosting the show. Uh, some of the best photography that I have from from the days of of teeing it up there, and uh, for the first time in twelve years or eleven years, sorry, he comes back on teeing it up to talk about his Olympic broadcasting. Service experience, Matt, congratulations. Uh, great job, fascinating insight, and thank you for joining Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling today. Thanks, Jeremy. I think, uh, going back to your, your, one of your last questions, like anything else you want to talk yeah. about, and um, there's just, I think, what I, what I want to remind people is the level of humanity that goes into the Olympics that you don't see. Uh, when you watch the games, obviously, like we talked about, you see a lot of controversy 
and you see a lot of drama, but what you we don't see is the level of humanity that goes into making all this work. Um, you know, there's when we went out there, I wouldn't say there was a, a huge language barrier, but there was one. You know, there were times where like I couldn't communicate well with people. Um, and sometimes that is like the best testament of humanity when you can't communicate through language and you have to work together. When I was in the green room, we had, um, you know, I had all different Chinese workers with me. And um, after doing that for, you know, a, a few weeks, you you kind of become this little, like, family in, 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 a, in a strange way almost. Like, you see them every single day. You're working together to make this all happen. You're communicating. And you're having a good time doing it. So when it's time to depart, you're like, wow, that was, that was a lot of fun. And those people were really cool and, and did a really good job helping me. Um, when I was working the opening ceremonies, I had a student with me that was amazing. Like, he spoke incredible English. We practiced Spanish together. Um, and there were a few times where, like, I couldn't get in, get to where I needed to go based on security. And this kid just took initiative and called all these different contacts and was speaking Chinese with all these different people. And I just stood by and was like, you do your thing. And he totally allowed me to get where I needed to get. And, um, you know, the same story with like Eileen Gu and sharing that experience with her mom, putting the uh, gold medal around her mom's neck. the, The audience doesn't see that stuff. And I think that what we have to remember when we are watching events or criticizing athletes or criticizing the games and criticizing all this other stuff is that you're not there. You don't know what's going on. And you have to remember that the reason that it's happening is not because of conflict. It's because people are working together. And if there was uh, an abundance amount of conflict during the games, you wouldn't be watching them. It literally takes everyone working together. So when you see, when you're there, and you're sitting on your couch and you're criticizing stuff, um, everyone has a right to their own opinion, but you know, make sure that you could expand how you're forming that opinion before you make judgments because I can't express enough like how appreciative I was of like all the Chinese people that I met and all the people that we worked with um, because we literally all did it together. It wasn't just OBS, it wasn't just NBC, it was like thousands of people that collectively work together to make all that happen. There's no better way to say a podcast, uh, sorry, to end a podcast than what you just said. Um, Well done. And just remember the humanity that is in all of us. Um, Matt, thank you for coming on Teeing It Up. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeremy. It was a lot of fun. I hope we get to do it again soon. Absolutely. And thank you all for listening to this edition of Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. Take care, everybody.